From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, we'd love to hear from you. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, like maybe Colin's home and native land, of Saskatchewan, we'd like to hear from you. The number there is 1-205-271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams. Michael, oh, check that. Celebrity producer today, Mr. Charles Beery. It's not even April Fool's Day, but Mr. Beery and Mr. McCall are trading places today. And uh, Matt Gubensky is screening our phone calls, and your social media maven is Mr. Jeff Burson. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? Doing pretty good, Jack, and ready to take callers when we yeah. get to that. Well, there we go. So um, with all of the doings in various parts of the world, from Ukraine to the Middle East to the earthquakes in Afghanistan to the mass shootings in our own country, um, one of the things that has gotten maybe a little bit less uh, on people's nerves than we thought it would would be the Synod on Synodality, which is about to come to a uh, right. conclusion. Mm-hmm. And I thought it might be a good uh, point here at the beginning of the program just to kind of, you know, reiterate what it is, what it isn't, what can happen, what can't happen. And uh, really, as far as any kind of, you know, uh, concrete measures, we're not going to hear anything like that for about a year, right? We are not. Um, A synod has, of course, an established place in the history of the church, east and west, more so in the east because they use it as their ordinary form of governance, uh, and those in union with Rome, of course, subject to papal uh, permission or acclamation or or, uh, approbation, rather, of of the decisions, whether for electing of bishops and for other purposes. Uh, and in the East, it is more is the more common, uh, more common form of general government. Uh, in the West, it's something of a new thing resurrected at Vatican II. There is an established uh, uh, synod office uh, in the in the Vatican for the synod of bishops, and synod of bishops have certainly been the ordinary way of operating over the history of the Church. Uh, although synods quite regularly have both uh, guests. Uh, as at Vatican II, even the Second Vatican Council had guests from Orthodoxy and also from the non-Catholic Christian churches of the West, uh, Anglican and other, and also lay participants, uh, usually not as voting members. In this particular synod, for, for the first time that most people are aware of, uh, lay people got to vote on the various uh, points that were raised and, and towards the final documents uh, that would 
uh, would be generated in the various panels and then towards the final document. Uh, there is a, an element of this that in all the discussion of whether that was right or appropriate or not that people uh, tend to forget, I think, and that is that within papal primacy is the right to exercise that primacy in the manner of his choosing, something that Pope John Paul II reiterated uh, when he, in his encyclical Unum Sint, when he talked about ways in which, for example, the Eastern churches might be brought back into communion and how you know, the, the papacy would have to, you know, perhaps uh, approach uh, the governance of those churches differently than, uh, than we would say the Western church. And much of that is already in practice with respect to the Eastern Catholic churches. But to make that point, so Pope Francis chose to give the lay people voting. It is non-traditional in the sense that uh, hadn't been done before, but ultimately the, the fruits of the synod are going to be up to what the Pope decides uh, using his governing power, which is given to him and him alone, and to take what advice from the synod as he may or desire to take. Uh, and that was his right before this approach to a synod was invented. It will be his right uh, after the synod is uh, over this month and again when it's repeated next month and some concluding overall conclusions and, and so on are, are, are presented to him and published. So uh, I, I think people need to sort of maybe settle down, take a breath. We're halfway through this process, or maybe two-thirds, because we also had the national and the continental synods before this. So we're half, more than halfway towards the conclusion of this process, and it will arrive at the desk of the office holder, uh, whoever that man is in a particular pontificate, uh, who has the sole authority to decide what comes of it. Uh, and in serious matters, that authority is protected by the charisms and the promises uh, to Peter. And that's always what Catholics must remember. As a matter of faith, we have the obligation to believe that. Whether we dicker about the theology, the implications, the pastoral prudence, and other things related to synod judgments, past, present, or future, there is always the promise of Christ that we can rely upon with respect to every pope at every point in history. We're not about the business here of reversing dogma. It's not about that. In fact, there was, have been some very reassuring statements on that from the synod participants and, and in a document, um, uh, uh, things which were, have been said in the last few days either. That's what's not it's about. It's in an area uh, which is something of a gray area, and that is, and something of a new area. I remember being taught in the seminary in the 80s as the new code of canon law was coming out, how some of these things had worked in the past and how they might work in the future. Uh, but, you know, essentially it will, it, will, it will come to the Pope's desk, and that is where any of the final judgments will be made. And we rely, again, on the grace of vocation and the particular grace uh, that rests with the successor of Peter. And then finally, Colin, I want you to, to just very briefly comment, to try to maybe uh, speak some additional uh, calmness <laughs> into the, to the situation. But there are people who are legitimately troubled, uh, you know, and usually if, if people are troubled about something in the church, there's generally probably going to be some sort of misconception woven in there somewhere. 
probably. Right. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you have folks that legitimately, sincerely feel that they have people, priests in particular, but other people who, to their way of thinking, are merely speaking the truths of the church. Right. But are essentially being told to pipe down by the Vatican, mm-hmm. allegedly, while you have a whole bishops' conference that is completely off the rails in Western Europe. What would you say to those folks to well give them for, some for comfort? one 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 thing? Some of that description, which is is a fair description of the landscape, but the landscape is not necessarily fair. That's the the point I would make. Uh, the nationality and the nation and the conference of which you speak, whose name <laughs> need not be spoken for most people who know who we're talking about, you know, you know, see for standing, uh, we, uh, has been rebuked on, on precisely some of the points that concern people. And yes, we, it's a, been a little bit of cowboy theology in a country not, in which cowboys are not well known but a bit of cowboy theology in terms of the pastoral application. So, for example, with regard to some of the issues that came up at the city, there was a particular bishop recently who said, well, Germany is just... De- oh, there, I said the name of the country. Gosh, nobody knew it till I try, now. as hard as I try. But anyway, <laughs> Germany is unique in the forces that are here, and we have no vocations, and I thought... You have no vocations, <laughs> and your culture is perhaps as worse off, if not as bad, worse than, but maybe less worse than our own here in the United States, where we have found that the diocese that are faithful to the magisterial teaching that uh, that's in the tradition and the diocese where Eucharistic adoration and prayer and apostolates are favored and promoted Uh, as they have always been in the church, whether it's the social action known as Catholic action in the past and now it's spread among quite a variety of... All of these things take place, and you have vibrant dioceses in the United States which have not had to bend over backwards to to convince the culture that the church was was worth saving and keeping and joining. And yet we have other examples of cultures where the exactly the opposite has been done and also of other non-Catholic churches where the accommodationist approach has been taken to the culture that is hemorrhaging people and has no vocation. So I'm not sure what model should be chosen, but I think orthodoxy and common sense is working pretty well in many places in the world. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, Advent's right around the corner, and EWTN's Religious Catalog's got a beautiful poinsettia Advent wreath. You'll be ready for Advent with this traditional floral wreath. It has delicate, lifelike red fabric poinsettia flowers and green leaves set on a grapevine-style wreath. There are four black metal tapered candle holders completed in this piece. Candles are sold separately. 
The wreath is 14 inches in diameter, and after Advent, you can use any colored candles for the decorative centerpiece during the Christmas season. It's available now at EWTNRC.com. They're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. Simply use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. First up today is Ronald in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, listening at EWTN.com. Ronald, thanks for holding through that first segment. You are on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. Hello, Ronald. How are you doing this week? I'm, I'm carrying my cross. <laughs> Good for you, Garrett. Good for you. And I should remind people today is the day of prayer and penance for... Uh, a peace in the Middle East, uh, and it's something we should keep very in the front of our minds today when we say our prayers and go to Mass and, and what, what our spiritual exercises are. But what's your question today? I guess it's a Q&A show, so we'll take your question, too. My question is, Jesus said to the Jewish people, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was talking about his body. So at the end of the world, how is there going to be a third temple? Uh, there isn't. Uh, that temple, uh, and, and some even count look for a fourth temple, because there's a description in Ezekiel of a temple from which water flows out of the side and brings life and, and, brings, uh, and desalinizes the ocean. Um, this is Christ on the cross. He is the temple that was torn down and rebuilt itself in three days. And that temple is preserved in his church and from the church by her sacraments, which is what Ezekiel's language speaks to. It's a prophecy of Christ and his mystical body, the church, and the graces and sacraments that flowed from his side on the cross, the water and the blood, which represents baptism and the Eucharist, and thereby all the sacraments of of the Christian covenant. Uh, And that will exist until the end of the world when Christ comes and takes the whole kit and caboodle into the eternal kingdom where where obviously the temple is God himself and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and we exist in his presence forever. So whether a, uh, whether you're Jewish or looking forward to a rebuilt temple to replace the, the temple which uh, Herod constructed, which was the successor of previous temples, or whether you're uh, a non-Catholic looking for a millennial kingdom on the earth which will have a temple, uh, there, will no be, there will not be such a kingdom. That temple already exists and it's the temple of the living God, which was the incarnate body of Christ while he was here on earth, and his mystical body until he returns again. Uh, those are the only temple to look for. Uh, and the church also points to the fact that uh, in the middle of the 300s, one of the emperors, uh, who was a pagan who didn't accept the Christian faith, the uh, Emperor Julian, he tried to rebuild the temple uh, in in Jerusalem as sort of an insult to Catholicism and as a, an appeasement uh, with the, the Jews of the empire. And an earthquake destroyed it before it could be finished. So there will be no temple uh, except that which there already is and which is an eternal temple and is Christ himself. 
Thanks, Ronald. We appreciate the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. Still plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Marie is in the great state of Missouri watching us on YouTube today. Marie, you're on with Colin Donovan. Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I guess my question is a complicated one, um, but... Backstory is our marriage is not the greatest. It's been bad for like nine years, the entire time. And I've gone from 142 to 115 in weight because of the stress. And my kids, our kids see it. And um, our kids they even said, you know, why don't you just get rid of your wedding rings, mommy, and get a divorce? And he's eight. So, backstory with that, that caused a lot of stress. And I've turned to the medical marijuana at night for sleeping because I just cry myself to sleep most nights the situation so i didn't know where the church stands on that because mm-hmm. i'm feeling incredibly guilty doing and in, in, in engaging in that and it's con- sure. kind of consuming you know emotionally like you know i need to get mm-hmm. it again i was actually at the dispensary sitting in the car and i was like i'm gonna call and yeah. i get through then that's god saying i need to hear this. so yeah the way, this is uh we have, we have uh, just a minute or so here before our break. No, we're, we're good. You've got oh, time, okay. but I, I thought was just going to say that yeah. the Church probably thinks a little differently in Missouri as it would in Alabama. Well, yes. I mean, we're, we're obliged to the laws of the state, of, is one thing, and uh, states are opening up on that. Uh, the laws of the state are not necessarily prudent. The Church general position on anything is that nothing is in and of itself evil, but the use which is made of it can make it evil or morally wrong for the person involved. So if you think of medical, if you drop the word medical and somebody said marijuana, recreationally or otherwise, you would have all kinds of literature on whether that was prudent or not. Uh, the experiments in some states like Colorado, I think, are showing that it's not very prudent at all, uh, that it's a disaster. When you throw the word medical on front of it, but you can get it at a dispensary such as uh, you can buy, you know, Tylenol or some other aspirin-type product, acetaminophen or other, then you add, add the question is, what is the need in my particular case? And very often, even with, uh, even with normal drugs, which are very familiar to medicine and have long histories of safety, there are considerations which a doctor would want to know before prescribing it. Uh, and some people simply can't, uh, you know, can't, uh, can't deal with it. Uh, so that, that would be the, the element there. Uh, what consultations have you had with medical professioner who can evaluate the totality of your situation and condition and can give you peace that this was a you know a prudent decision to use it uh, and not wrong on prudent grounds, medical grounds and others because otherwise you're self-medicating and it's always it's always difficult. it's not it's not like self-medicating with aspirin or, you know, if you're dehydrated, you drink more water. I mean, many things we do rather routinely. And medicines which previous generations considered to be medicines in the strict sense of needing a prescription, which get downgraded and no longer a prescription because of decades of safe use. There is very little experience with marijuana for multiple purposes. 
it definitely has found to have beneficial things for different elements. But I, I think the medical part of it has to be emphasized. And of course, where something is illegal, the church would never counsel that somebody go against uh, against the laws of the of the state in a situation like that, uh, simply because you lose a lot more if you're arrested and you're thrown in jail than if you carefully get, say, a necessary prescription. And a lot of states that don't sell it freely will be selling it uh, as a prescription, um, or or in some some fashion like that. So I think emphasize the medical aspect of it. Get the proper advice that you need, considering what your medical state is, and there I would include all mental states and nervous conditions and so on. Get the proper uh, diagnosis and advice that will help you there, uh, and you know, ma- maintain your equilibrium, but also help you with any symptomology that you have. That's the only really proper way to proceed on that, I think. Yeah, Marie, we will certainly keep you in our prayers. And Colin, I'm going to read an email that we have here that is mm-hmm. really along the same lines. And I think, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, that there's beyond significant evidence that, you know, marijuana is without question potentially a gateway drug in a lot yeah. of situations. And with kids in the house, you know, I would just caution Marie in that regard as to whatever exposure might be involved there. Yeah. And Michael writes in, is it a mortal sin to smoke pot to relax or maybe on a Friday or Saturday night instead of having a moderate amount of alcohol? I've asked this same question to five different priests, and only one priest stated that it was a mortal sin, but I did not specify in moderation or infrequently to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think in addition to all that I told Marie and all that I said there, um, and she's, I think, described beyond a, the, the practical definition of an occasional recreational joint, as we used to say in the old days. Not that I ever did that. And so as a consequence of that, uh, yeah, in, in, certainly in states where that is legal, people come to be acclimated to the legality of it. But I think... Abortion is legal, euthanasia is legal, and our definition of legal today brings into question the prudential judgment of state legislatures and counties and cities where things which are generally known to have quite negative effects, even if some have used them without consequence, are not regulated appropriately. And so I don't know that you know, even if it is legal in your state, I don't know that that's a, a good idea. It is, I think, by general acknowledgement, something that is much stronger than alcohol. Alcohol, we know very precisely, you know, it enters the bloodstream. It takes X amount of time to, to be broken down by the liver. You know, the breathalyzer and these things take advantage of very known facts about uh, alcohol consumption. It's very very known regularly, and it's been used for millennia with with both in moderation but also without moderation. And I remember uh, a Jesuit who was involved in the in dealing with alcoholics. This was back in Seattle, Seattle, Father Talbert Tal- Talbot, who mentioned that 
you know, studies have shown that in those cultures where the, you know, the, the grape has been grown or where barley or other things made in it, there becomes a, a, a physical acclimation and genetically, people now are more better disposed for the breakdown of this. And then in the Arctic regions, when they occur, we know the disasters created in there and among the Native, Native Americans, it's because our bodies are telling us whether we're acclimated to it. And you may not know the degree to which you are or are not acclimated to something like that. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our friends at Carolina Catholic Radio, in, or Catholic Radio rather, in South Carolina, they need to hear from you next week. They're airing their annual Radiothon broadcast next Wednesday through Friday. So if you're listening on any of the 11 stations across the South Carolina area, please support um, Catholic Radio in South Carolina and all of your EWTN radio affiliates out there, um, they are worthy of your support. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Phil in Illinois writes in, I've been a Catholic my entire life. I'm 62 years old. And I still need clarification on the sacrifice of the Mass. Since it's called a sacrifice, does this mean that Jesus suffers each time the Mass is celebrated? No. The Church's doctrine on this was defined at the Council of Trent based on the development over the course of a number of centuries by St. Thomas Aquinas and others regarding the nature of uh, the sacrificial element. And so it's said that the sacrifice is represented by a sacramental mode. In other words, it's a sacrament is a sign. Now, we think of a sign as saying, okay, you know, here's, you know, here's the Birmingham city limits or here's the Mountain Brook city limits or whatever. You're really at the place. You're there. And a symbol is something that represents something else. So we see the American flag or the Canadian flag or the Mexican flag or whatever, and we know it represents a country. It is not the country, although it may be designating you're in the country. But it's not the country. A sacrament is the thing it represents. But it represents something now that is supernatural and beyond our possibility of sense experience today. So in water, in the water of baptism, the outpouring of grace of the Holy Spirit and all the gifts, graces and gifts that comes with baptism. In the Eucharist, the bread and the wine stand for the body and the blood of Christ because they have been transubstantiated and our eyes deceive us as the great prayer, uh, our senses deceive us as the great hymn of uh, Thomas Aquinas says, but the reality is not that it is bread and wine, but it is Christ and his sacrifice. And the sacrifice is sacramental because the body and the blood are consecrated separately. So in God's providence, as, and the words of our Lord at the Last Supper pointed to this, that it's the celebration of the until he comes again of his passion, death, and resurrection. St. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 11. 
you know, that we, that until this is the, uh, we celebrate the sacrifice of the Lord until he comes again. So all of these things are wrapped up there. They really happened and they exist eternally because God is eternal and Christ is with God. So they are sacramentally presented in each and every day. This is the sacrifice with the prophet Malachi spoke of, that everywhere a pure offering would be given. Well, the greatest offering ever given to the Father and the only acceptable one was the sacrifice of Christ. There is no way that Malachi can be fulfilled in history, in the future, present, or past, except for precisely the understanding that the church has regarding the Mass as a sacramental representation of the actual sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The pure offering offered from the rising to the setting of the sun everywhere, in every century, and in most places, at least where the church has gone, in most places until Christ comes again. That's the only way Malachi chapter 1 can be fulfilled. And it's because of the sacramentology of the, of the liturgy. When you consume the host, you know, you're not crunching on Jesus' bones. That's a physicalism which the church rejects. I think some Catholics, you know, with a little scrupulosity are afraid to chew the host. Must it melt and go? No. The church rejects that kind of a physicalist understanding of, of the Eucharist. And it rejects the idea that it's a bloody sacrifice. And in fact, the language of the church is that it's an unbloody sacrifice precisely because it's in the sacramental mode. It's not in a real, real historical mode or a realist mode, but rather sacramental representation is real and true but supernatural and beyond our ability to explain it as well as we could or should, but we'll understand it as well as we are able to understand it when we get to heaven. Unique opportunity for you on this Open Line Friday. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Any questions that you have about the teachings of the church, we would love to hear from you today. Carl writes in, how do we know that Mary was lifted into heaven at the Assumption? Well, it's it's a tradition. Um there is no place that the church ever claimed the, that her body is, just as there is no place the church ever claimed that the body of Christ was or is today, uh, other than during those uh, days in the ground or days in the tomb when he was buried before his resurrection. And so the explanation of that then flows from the contemplation of the uh, there are there are traditions regarding that the apostles came together. She uh, was known to be dying. She died. They went to raise her to put her in the tomb, but uh, the tomb was empty, sort of like with Christ. So there's uh, there's traditions to that respect. The explanation is the connection between our Lord and Our Lady, and the prophecies in Genesis and especially in Genesis uh, 3.15 regarding the, of the Messiah, the woman, and the seed. So in founding a new, new 
a new humanity. Christ was the beginning of that humanity, the new Adam. Mary is the new Eve. And the goal of that humanity is, trans, uh, to, is glorification with God. And not only what, was, what Christ received in being glorified by the Father, Mary received by being glorified by the Holy Trinity. So from that tradition, which the Church believed widely and completely, developed a, a doctrinal explanation of the Assumption. And it was only declared as a dogma in 1950, uh, but it's, uh, it's something that has been in the church from, from the beginning. Um, Jeff in North Dakota writes in, Dear Colin, what is apophatic theology? Is it possible to learn or read about it, or does that defeat the purpose? Um, I'm not exactly, that's not, I'm not sure that's a word that I've heard. There is a, there is a negative theology and that may be what he's talking about. And the Eastern Church uses it, and that is they don't try to say positively what there is about God, but only what God is not. Uh, so that's why there is some resistance <clears throat> in, the, in the 1200s to the Thomistic theology and the theology of Western uh, Roman Catholicism, the Western Church, uh, based on the idea that because we had the papal magisterium, we could say, make positive statements uh, regarding theological questions. But rather, they, tend, they prefer to make negative statements, what God is not, rather than what God is. Now, obviously, with created realities, you have a little bit more freedom there in terms of creation in the church and things like that. And you obviously definitionally have to say many things about divine realities, uh, as they operate in the world. But that is sort of a, di a distinction between uh, Eastern and Western theology. And within the, within the church, uh, within the Catholic Church, it is measured in that theology is not the basis of our belief. Teaching is. And so theology must go through all the bumps and bruises of you know, consensus building and recognition on a wide level and acceptance on a wide level. It's still theology, but as time goes on, the church starts to take it as teaching, and it may end up being dogmatically defined. So there is a whole process in the church. There is a more positivistic theology, which tends to be the, uh, the, the Protestant approach, and that is that, well, you start with the propositions of the Bible, and you draw the conclusions from it. We, we do that. But you're limited by that because you have no magisterium to, to, to de make determinations. You can come to local consensus. You can come to a Germanic consensus or an Anglo-Saxon consensus or or some other local church's consensus, but only in the Catholic Church do you really have a universal consensus, a Catholic consensus, and one which is capped by the charism of the magisterium which Christ left the church to, to, to teach affirmatively that something is true and to be believed. The early councils did that, certainly, and it's not that in the East that they don't, can't do that and don't do it. But uh, it's certainly those are the only two places where you get sort of this charismatic judgment that something is true and ought to be believed on the basis of that.
Um, next up is Paul. He is in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Paul, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. I had a question yeah. about, um, as we know, Mary is in heaven, body and soul, and we're waiting on Jesus to come back, and at the end of time, um, all of our bodies um, be taken up to heaven with them. My question is, what about those that um, don't make it to heaven and end up in hell? Are their bodies there now, or are they going to wait until Jesus comes back, or do we know? No, the general resurrection is at the end of history, and it is for good or for ill. So at that time, remember, we lived as human beings, and we will ultimately be condemned as human beings, but we, our souls are separate until the end, uh, and then we will receive in our bodies that reward or, or punishment which is due to us, mostly through the judgments of our soul, our lack of belief by our intellects, and our lack of doing the good by our wills. Does okay, that, does that help? The number to be on the show is 1-833-288-3986. Again, 1-833-288-3986. Uh, Chris on YouTube asks, Is it possible that when Paul speaks of doing the evil that he wills not to do, he commits mortal sin? I, I think he was may not be talking about that, but he's talking about the general inclination of the flesh. Remember, we have those... Those three ancient enemies, and they're enemies within the house, or at least uh, um, at least one of them is, I guess. Uh, we have the enemies outside the house, the world and the devil, and the enemy within the house, the flesh, which the, we think of in terms of concupiscence, the d- desire of our body for, for things which please but are not necessarily morally good or good for us. And so... Paul, I think, was saying in a general in a general way the situation of all of us, and that is we have to overcome uh, the the tendency towards sin in us. And throughout history, the church has developed a, a you know a great understanding of this. You know, in talking about the three weird ways of the spiritual life, for example, as so many great spiritual writers have done how you start out overcoming venial sin, the inclinations to venial suit or to mortal sin, the inclination to mortal sin, but still you're struggling against the, the flesh and against, obviously, the influence of the world, the scandal of the world, which says, oh, that's okay, don't worry about it, go do it. And so once we get rid of the mortal sin, we still have to get rid of the ver- venial sin, the inclinations which are not mortally sinful, but yes, our tendencies towards that sin. And we overcome that. And even when we do that, John of the Cross and, and the other mystical doctors tell us that the roots of sin are ultimately in the soul. Remember where these choices are have been made to do these things. And we have to root out the, the spiritual inclinations in us. So we may not be you know, materially vain or materially proud or materially intemperate, but we can have spiritually the 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 sort of the spiritual inc- uh, roots of those sins. You know, we, we need to chase after apparitions to satisfy our curiosity about things. We're not satisfied with what the church teaches. We have to know, we have to know what, what's going on in the world. And it's spiritual because it's good Catholic stuff and it's okay. But no, John of the Cross would say that's the roots of the roots of the spirit. You've probably taken care of the other roots. Now they're in your. What's left is in your spirit, and we get those out. 
And when we get those out, and for usually the saints, there's a, a very arduous process of that, then we are perfect. And those are the people that the church usually ends up canonizing as they have gotten those out of themselves by prayer, by penance, by fidelity. They've cleared out the material roots of sin. They've cleared out the spiritual roots of sin, obviously with God, God helping them and doing the, the heavy lifting. But having done that, they are now in a perfect union with God, both here on earth and then when they finally go to him in heaven. Those are the kinds of people who very often uh, are the ones that are canonized or those who go through some great trial that lays all of that on them in the short, short period of time, as the martyrs do, where they must give up everything, every pleasure of the body and every, and every evil inclination of the soul in accepting Christ and accepting death for Christ can be, is a purification of the moment, really. So those have to be gotten out of us. Uh, but I don't think Paul was necessarily talking about uh, the, the inclination to possible mortal sin, because every bad road will lead to a capital sin, but not that he necessarily was committing mortal sins, but he recognized the weakness was still in him. You, you went on without me. Well, I would have stopped and prayed for you and hope you'd return, but we I would, chose not would, to do we, that. We'll talk about that later. Okay. Um, <laughs> we still have time for your phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. If I had heard sirens, I would have done the praying part. That, that, well, thank you. That's good to know. 833-288-3986. Um, Gene writes in, what is that? Boy, I love this. This I'm not, I'm not picking on Gene, but we as humans, we... We just have this innate need to know every detail about the unknown just scares the whatever out of us. Uh, Gene says, what is the process of the particular and general general judgments after you die? (laughs) He wants a program, Colin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know... um... I got that book in, in, in by Heavenly Amazon last week, and I haven't able to read more than the foreword. <laughs> you know, it was written in Hebrew, and it was very hard to parse. But uh, any anyway, we pretty much know very little. It's appointed to man to die once, after which the judgment. Who's the judge? Christ. He will. He came to. He came in mercy to redeem us but he will be there for justice at the end. And he's the Father's representative. And mercy will, will be the church's main job until the end of time. And then will come Christ's job of judgment. But what, God, what, what the Lord does at the end of history on the world, and he describes that in some detail, especially in Matthew and uh, uh, Matthew's Gospel, what, what he does there, he does for each of us when we die. He judges us, and we learn our destiny immediately. We don't have our bodies back, as we were just, you know, talking about. Uh, so yeah, we, that, that's when I left. Well, I figured you would wax, wax poetically on that for about twenty minutes, and so, so you knew you were safe to take, right. a, to well, take a clearly I was take your leave. <laughs> <laughs> we had to move on, thank, <laughs> thankfully to Charlie. So, um, but in, in any case, so we will we will go before the Lord, and he will he will good and faithful servant 
or good and faithful ser- servant, but you need a little polishing, so off to purgatory you go, or, or you know, get out of my sight, <laughs> and off you go to the other place. That'll happen uh, at the end of our life, and for those who are alive at the end, uh, that will happen then. Uh, but we also believe that in the general judgment, we will see how history played out, and we will all, good and evil, will understand the mercy of God to the greatest sinners who repented and the justice of God, you know, even to the good who get, fell away at the end. Um, you know, there's that, you know, there's that uh, star- parable or story in, in the Old Testament that, you know, and, and that even if, um, you know, if even at the end of life you go against God, you will be judged. Or if the evil man changes at the mm-hmm. end of life, you will be saved. And so this is, this is what will happen in each and every case for some uh, in, in, within history and for uh, the rest who are alive at the end of history. Uh, we could probably still, still squeeze a phone call in if you give us a call right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Pauline wants to know, what is the illumination of conscience? Conscience, is this a real thing that will take place? There's very little known, um, although there are books written on this subject referring to, uh, through, to, re- to apparitions and uh, private revelation that haven't been confirmed by the church. It would certainly amount to the illumination that we will all have at the moment of our death. That could apply to that. Uh, it could apply to the illumination at the end of history by which all <coughs> will know uh, know the results of, of history and of God's judgment of individuals. Uh, we can only speculate how God makes that possible. Some use it, uh, connect it with a, an event described in, again, some apparitions not recognized by the church where God gives a warning to the world. And just before that, he gives an illumination to you know, prepare people so that more more might convert. That would have to be considered speculatively and based on its sources, not something to wait around for. We don't want to wait, as Constantine did, to be baptized at the end of our life. We don't want to wait until the illumination of conscience to change our hearts. To do now is the day of salvation not at some illumination that we believe is promised, not at the end of our life or the end of time. So there is enough in what the church already tells us what to do uh, to convert us. We don't, in the end, need apparitions and private revelations which suggest such things as warning and illumination of conscience. Perhaps it gives some hope to some individuals for their relatives that appear to them lost. But everything that they would need to convert is already present in the church. And so um, you might ask, well, why are they more deserving than people who lived 100 years or 500 years? So I wouldn't count on it is, I guess, my bottom line there. (coughs) Quickly, we'll head to Susan in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Susan took me up on my offer. Susan, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. 
My no, question Susan. is, my hello. My question is, so if those that get sent to hell and they're tortured and punished and whatever, and it's bad, and the demons got cast into hell, and it seems like they're the torturers. You know, they're the inflictors. So are the demons tortured, too? And is Satan, the head torturer, um, afflicted, too? Because who tortures them? Okay. Uh, The Church and Scripture uses the expression fire um, to, to indicate the suffering of hell. It would necessarily have to be spiritual fire in a certain way uh, for demons or souls of human beings before the end of the world to suffer. And so that's basically without understanding just exactly what it is composed of or how God brings it about. Uh, Some theories suggest that the love of God in those who do not love God is what generates this fire. So remember... The nature even of the demon is good. He was created as an angel. The angelic nature is good. The nature of a human being who has otherwise become thoroughly morally evil is nonetheless good. He's created good by God and made the choices for evil made by the individual. So there is something in God in each of us and angels or men which will be sustained for all eternity because God doesn't annihilate good that he has created. It will always exist. And so, therefore, they exist. And some have speculated that love in a person, a creature, and angels are persons, but love in a persons who are not in union with God and receiving the refreshment of him receiving it properly is actually the source of this. There may be physical tortures. Dante wrote a whole book about that, what that might be like. And so the, the, the church doesn't attempt to explain those in any depth, but simply the fact which Christ himself affirms, that demons and evil men will be suffer for eternity. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again on Monday with Father John Tregilio. Until then, God bless.